We're in the Advent season. We've talked about that a lot already this morning, right? We're in our second week of Advent. We've got our two candles lit, some easier than others. But here's the thing. I want to recognize, I want to, I want to just kind of yeah, acknowledge that some of y'all might be like, Advent, what is that? I've heard that. What Advent means is coming. It means dawning. This is a time where we celebrate, where we prepare for Jesus is coming, even though he's already come. We reflect and we look back on it and we spend our hearts in a season of preparation. Last week, what we looked at in the coming of John the Baptist and the announcement that John the Baptist would come is that God is preparing us to receive hope, to receive holiness, and to receive healing. Well, this week, we're gonna see something else. We're gonna see That when we accept that Jesus is coming, it is fact and not fiction. We see that God takes our fears, especially our chief fear of being in right relationship with him and whether or not we are right with him. He takes that fear, he removes it, he imparts his favor, but that we have to see that by faith. So what we're going to say this morning is that we are prepared for faith, we are prepared for favor. We're going to see that in the text. In fact, let me go ahead and read that for you now. Please turn with me in your Bibles. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Picking it up in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Friends, this is God's word. It is given to you, spoken to you from him for you in love and for our good. Amen? Amen. Well, here's how we're going to look at this faith, this fear, and this favor this morning. As we divide this text, as we go through it, we're going to see three things. We're going to unpack this under three headings, and it's this. Jesus's advent is received as fact, not fiction. Received as fact, not fiction. The second thing we need to see is that Jesus' advent replaces fear with favor. Replaces fear with favor. And then we'll ask a question, how? How is that fear replaced with favor? And we'll hone in on this. Jesus' advent requires real faith. 
Fact, not fiction, replaces fear with favor and requires real faith. Let's look at the first one. Let's see that Advent prepares us to receive Jesus and the events about him as fact and not fiction. We live in a day and an age where not everybody just has an implicit trust in the Bible, do we? If we had lived 50 years ago, 100 years ago, it would have been a lot more widespread, although faith in the Bible was even starting to crumble then. It began to crumble 200, 300 years ago. We don't live in a day where I can just talk to somebody and assume they even know who David or Goliath is. Most people will have heard of Jesus, but it's more often than not that they will have heard of Jesus from Facebook or Fox News than the Bible. As a result, people say things like this. Just ask, have you heard this from somebody? Something to this effect. The Bible is fable and myth. It's good morals that we need to draw. That's how you use the Bible. Have you heard this? Yes, yes, a lot of us have heard this. Excuse me, other people will say things like this. Believing that the Bible is historical and real is for intellectually lazy simpletons. How many of you have ever felt like you've been belittled or made to feel like an idiot because you believe that the Bible is historical? Yeah, right? Like I can say, like I have two master's degrees. I'm not dumb, right? Yet people will tell you, you need to go see a mental therapist, right? Here's the thing. People will say things like this. People who are not hostile to Christianity but are more neutral and just don't give a rip about Christianity will say something like this. Yeah, you know, I get that people used to believe the fairy tale stuff, but it was never designed to be historical. Now we have to make our own meaning. Isn't believing in the Bible as history kind of old-fashioned? Right? Have any of you heard this? Yeah, a lot of us have heard this from our non-Christian friends or family. Here's the thing. I want to convince you this morning that Luke is writing with an eye towards history. This is not make it up as you go along. This is not a fable. This is not uh, Aesop's fables. This is not Beatrix Potter. This is not Br'er Rabbit or Peter Pan where there's a moral, right? This is not Hans and Gretel. No, Luke is writing with an eye towards history. Let's look at that. Look with me at verse 26. Look with me at verse 26. Look at the specific level of detail that Luke puts into his gospel. Anytime you look at Luke's gospel especially, you have to understand that Luke is a historian. That's what he's writing for. I spent time in grad school at Florida State University working on a master's degree. I never actually finished it because it was time to go to Iraq. It was time to deploy. But here's the thing. Luke is writing as a historian for you to believe. How do we say this? Look at the first four words verse 26, in the sixth month. He is referring to a specific date. What date is he referring to? If you were here with us last week, we saw an angel visit Zechariah. We saw him tell Zechariah that, that his wife, Elizabeth, would have a child. So it's in the sixth month of her pregnancy, right? We might not can pin that to an exact date, but here's the thing. This is a very specific detail, This by itself may not convince you, but let's go on. Let's look at more specific details. Look with me at how this continues. Do you see how the angel Gabriel in verse 26 is sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth? This was their way of saying, like, St. John, Indiana. Cedar Lake, Crown Point, Indiana. It was Nazareth, Galilee. Nazareth is the town. Galilee is like the county, the region, the state. That's very specific information. This is important. This is important, especially when we tie it all together. 
There's not just a specific time or a specific location, but there's a very, very specific person. Who is this person that the angel Gabriel came to? She's a virgin. That kind of narrows it down, right? Betrothed to who? A man whose name was Joseph. That narrows it down further. Joseph is from the house of David. This is some specific details, right? And the virgin's name was Mary. We know that Nazareth was a town of about 400, double the size of this congregation here this morning. We averaged somewhere right at around 200. And so if you just double us, you would have the town of Nazareth. If you were alive in Luke's day and you wanted to find Mary, you could go to double this congregation and say, is there anybody named Mary? Right? Like that would whittle it down. I'm looking for a Mary. People might say, well, which Mary? There's a couple Marys, right? People would then say, you would then be able to say, uh, who was engaged or betrothed to a guy named Joseph. She probably ran around saying she had a child that was not from Joseph, but she was still a virgin. That Mary. Would that whittle it down? Would that narrow the field? Yes, yes. And by the way, which Joseph? Oh, he's from the house of King David. Could we go find people who would know that Mary, and they would know which Mary we're talking about? Right? You don't put this level of specific detail in there when you're writing myth, when you're writing fable, if it's just a story with good morals. You don't do this. You don't need to. Luke is writing for history. If you were around in Luke's day sometime late 50s, early 60s AD, only 30 years after this has happened, right, and you read this, you could take this information, you could go to Nazareth, you could ask questions, and you could contradict Luke. Do you see that? Luke is not writing in 2021 AD. What Luke writes is very relevant and applicable for us here in 2021 AD, but Luke's original audience could go verify the facts. Do you see how bold and courageous this is? Right? Like, you don't do that unless you're writing history. We don't evaluate Luke for morality. We evaluate Luke for accuracy, for right or wrong, and Luke is really putting it out there. Right? He's saying, go ask her. Go ask the people. Let me ask you this. Are you here today? And you don't know what to believe about the Bible. Are you here and maybe you're a little skeptical as to whether or not the Bible is real history? Can you look at Luke? Can you look at what he's doing? Can you see how confident he is in what he's writing by including these specific details? And would you open your heart? Would you open your mind to investigating these claims about this child that is to come? Would you see if they're true? They stand up to scrutiny. Oh, this is going to play a big role in the faith we talk about in our final point. I get it. I was not always a Christian. I get it. You might be here and someone drug you here. Family, friends, spouse, my kids need good morals. Christmas is the time of year where we go to church. I need to feel good about myself, so I'm going to come, right? You might be here and you're more interested in the Bears-Cardinals game later on this afternoon, which is not going to be a very interesting game, by the way, right? It's like the worst against the best. I get it. But friends, if you want to make your life count, would you please investigate these claims and see if they're true or not? Because if they're true, there's something amazing that happens. What's that amazing thing that happens? Let's go to our second point, and let's see how Advent prepares us 
to replace fear with favor. To replace fear with favor. Can we talk about fear? Can we be honest about fear? I have never found a fearless human being. I know we all hold up people as brave and courageous and we take that to mean that they lack fear. No, I was in the army. I've been in firefights. I've known fear myself. I've seen soldiers have to perform in the face of fear. And not just any old fear, like the fear of death, right? Soldiers get scared. You might not connect with that personally. You might not have lived that. Maybe you have. Like maybe you're here and you're younger, right? And what are the fears when we're younger tend to be? Will I be married? Will I marry the right person? Will I find the right person? What will I do for a living, right? Will there be enough money to make ends meet, especially where it's harder and harder to find jobs, where prices are rising but wages are not, right? Like that can be a big source of anxiety. For you younger ladies, it can be, do I work in the home? Do I not work in the home? That's a big source of insecurity, anxiety, and fear. If you're my age, what are your fears? What are your fears? your children, right? It's one of them. It's a big one. How will they turn out? We've learned by now that children do not come with an instruction booklet. How many of you wish that each of your individual child came, boom, mom, dad, good to meet you. Here I am. Here's my instruction booklet for me as a unique individual, (laughs) right? We don't get that. We get general principles in the Bible that we have to apply to different personalities, different different types, right? Like we're worried about how they're going to turn out. We're worried about are we setting them up for the future? Are we setting our family up for the future? Will there be a retirement? Will there be a thing called social security when I'm in my 60s and 70s, right? If you're older than me, what do your fears tend to be? Well, you might be looking at your approaching death. The fear of death might be setting in. You might be asking yourself, I've lived most of my life. Did I make my life count? Right? Even if you're not scared of death, you're going to be looking back. Was it worth it? Did I get it right? Did I do it right? And you might also be, as I talk to older people, here's a big one these days. What kind of world am I handing my children and my grandchildren? What is the direction that it's headed? Can we be honest and say we all have fears? Because here's the thing. Mary is wrestling with an even larger fear, an even bigger fear. It's a fear we all wrestle with, whether we admit it or not, whether we realize it or not. It's not always manifest and, and just right in front of us. But let's take a moment and let's like really deal with this fear. And it's this. Am I in right relationship with God? How do I get that? How do I get that from the text? Go with me to verse 28. Go with me to verse 28. What does the angel say to Mary in verse 28? He says really nice stuff. Greetings, right? The root of that word is grace. Oh, favored one, you found favor with God. The Lord is with you. Like, are these bad words? No, if an angel shows up and you're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, what's going on here? Those are the words you want to hear, right? (laughs) But what's Mary's response in verse 29? Is she like, yes, nailed it crushing it, right? Is she like that at all? What is she like in verse 29? What does it say? She's greatly, come on, she's greatly troubled. Those two words are one word in the Greek. They mean fear. They mean dread. It's a state of perplexity and confusion so intense that you're feeling dread. She's scared. What is Mary experiencing right now? 
How many of you, when you get scared, the, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you feel tingly? When bad news drops, how many of you feel that pit in your stomach? That's me. I also can feel a wave of cold kind of go across my body like this, and it's like ice water has entered into my veins. Anybody? That is what Mary is feeling. Why is she feeling this, though, especially since the angel has given her kind words? Do you see how this is kind of like, what's going on here? Here's what we've got. Here's what we've got. The only possible explanation, I think, is this. When you come face to face with an angel, you are not coming face to face with Cupid. You are not coming face to face with a being that belongs on the cover of a Hallmark Valentine Day card or, or a proposal card. You are not coming face to face with the star of a toilet paper commercial, right? Like the little harp sitting on a cloud. What are you coming face to face with? When angels show up in the Bible, they're often associated with very brilliant, very impressive, very intimidating things. The angels in Isaiah 6 show up in fire and smoke. At the end of Matthew's gospel, when an angel shows up, when an angel descends, there's an earthquake. His appearance is bright, blinding, dazzling. It's like a lightning bolt coming down. It sends shockwaves of fear through Roman soldiers, right? Like army rangers of their day, like the most feared elite military unit. And it says their faces were like they turned to ghosts. What causes this? Why does this cause this, right? Like we need to have this understanding of angels, not our cultural understanding of angels. Why does it cause this, though? Is it because they're scary and they're going to hurt you? No, it's because of this. That impressive appearance means you have come face to face, Mary has come face to face with a visual representation of God's power, of God's might, of just how good our God is, how righteous he is. You come into contact with his majesty. You come into contact with how pure he is, with how perfect he is. And Mary internally is going, oh boy, <laughs> right? Like when we come into contact with God's glory, with God's holiness, we, like Mary, intuitively get that we are not worthy. We intuitively have all of those things that we don't like about ourselves, that we wish that could change and that we stuff and we suppress or we rationalize by saying, at least I'm not like this person or I'm not as bad as I can be, right? Like, like all those things we try to ignore about us that are unsavory, all those things we want that we shouldn't want, that we don't want, that we should want, they just bloop, come right up to the surface, right? Our guilt, our shame, can I call it sin? It just comes right to the surface, and Mary is sitting there saying, aware of this, you're saying that about me? Woo! <laughs> if you knew the real me, you would not be saying that. Can we all connect with that? I know as a pastor, I can. We need favor. Mary needed favor. We need grace. Mary needed grace. And here's the beautiful thing. When we look at the remainder of the angel's words, what do we find? We find that her fear is replaced with favor. 
Favor is another word for grace. It's the Old Testament word for grace. So let's break down this favor. Let's break down this grace. Let's see what is offered to us as our fear of being in right relationship with God is expelled and we can rest in being in right relationship with him and what it means that we have favor, that we have grace, right? Let's unravel this. Let's break this down. Go with me to verse 30. Go with me to verse 30. What's the first thing we see in verse 30? We see the angel provide words of comfort to Mary, don't we? Don't be afraid. Mary, you've found favor with God. Not Mary, you are full of favor because you've done good because you are sinless. No, no, no. Mary's aware of her sin or else she would not be scared, right? If you ever run into that teaching that Mary's sinless, just point right here and go, wait, what's going on here? Right? The angel reassures her. There's grace. And let's look at who Mary is. She's from a town of 400. How many of you are from a town of 400? Right? Mary, I love y'all, right? Like, I love going and visiting my cousins in Georgia. They're not even from a town of 400, right? Like, Mary is out in the sticks. We learn later on in Luke's gospel that people from Galilee speak with a funny accent. I'm from the south. I've been overcoming that all my life where I say ain't and y'all, and yes, it's pecan. It's profitable, by the way, right? Like, Mary has to deal with that. Here's the thing, if Mary were alive today, she would be from Gary, Indiana, or the parts of Cedar Lake where people live on a dirt floor. She might drive a broken down 1985 station wagon, you know the one with the reverse seat where as a kid you love sitting because you're going backwards and you're as far from mom and dad as possible, right? Her donkey is duct taped together, (laughs) right? The bumpers are falling off. God's grace comes to a girl like Mary. God's grace comes to you regardless of your station, regardless of your race, regardless of your socioeconomic class. You're never too far gone from God. What other people say about you is not true. Why? Because God's grace can come to anyone. That's the first thing we need to see about this favor that replaces our fear. What's the next thing that we need to see about God's favor and grace? Go with me to verse 31. Go to the precious name what? Come on, Sunday school, y'all. What's the answer? Jesus. Jesus. It's in bold. Come on, say it. There you go. What does the name Jesus mean? Like we learned two weeks ago that names have meaning, right? Remember that sermon? Vander something from the Rogers, fierce warrior, right? Like, yeah, right? The name Jesus has a purpose. It conveys a sense of meaning. What does the name Jesus mean? Does anybody know? God saves, God rescues, God delivers, God is salvation. The grace that comes to everybody is that God takes us in our impure state. He takes us in our sinful state and he rescues us from it. He delivers us from it. Can we deliver ourselves? Can we rescue ourselves? No. Like let's say you were born here, you're here right now on December 5th, 2021. Impurity, right? Let's say you leave here and you go, somehow miraculously, I'm going to live sinlessly, I'm going to live pure. And you go until you die and you nail it, you crush it, you get it right, you live pure. Here's the problem. God's not looking at this, he's looking at this, right? Purity is an all or none standard. We can't get in a time machine and go back and change what we did, right? And even if our external actions were pure, would our internal desires be pure? Can we change ourselves? No, the grace of God that Mary is experiencing that casts out our fear is this, God is coming to do for us what we cannot. And can you trust it? Can you trust it? Is it trustworthy? Is it true? Is God faithful? Yes, look at verses 32 and 33. 
Go with me there. Look at these words. Who will Jesus be? Great, but let's hone in on Son of the Most High. Hang on to that. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Hang on to that. Another way of saying it is he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And hang on to this last phrase. And of his kingdom there will be what? We say it every Christmas. There will be no end. This angel is saying a one thousand year old prophecy and promise given to king david is coming true in your boy mary and god is faithful to his promise go with me to second samuel chapter 7 verse 12 and through 14 look at the words look at the words do you hear the similarities do you hear the promise this is this is the lord god saying to david in a time of prayer when you lie down with your fathers i will raise up what say it your offspring that's your son right who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Are you here in Luke 1, 32, 33, what was just said to Mary? He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Yeah, and I will be to him as a father, and he will be to me as a is that son of the most high, the one who will sit on King David's throne. Our God is faithful. He is true to his word. When we say his grace will show up in anyone's life, that he wants it to. When he says, I will save, can you trust it? Can you take it to the bank? Yes, that's part of his favor. That's part of his grace. What's the final part that we see in this passage of his favor, of his grace towards you, towards us, towards all who will believe in Jesus? It's this, and this is mind-bending. If you hear this next part right and you don't believe in it, you should try to have me committed to an insane asylum. Do not let the familiarity of this passage gloss over. Do not let your eyes gloss over this. Listen to this. Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? What does the angel say? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High of God himself will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God himself, God the Son, is coming in the flesh. And he's coming as a baby. Do you hear how weird that is? Like that's, I mean, I want to be irreverent, right? But if you're not a Christian, you should be saying, whoa, time out. What did you just say? Yes, Jesus Christ, the coming child of Mary, is the man that God became when God became a man. He says he will save. How will he save? By coming himself by coming himself and living the pure, righteous, good, sinless life that you and I need and going to the cross and dying for our sins. You and I cannot do that for ourselves, but he himself will come and do it, and he's going to do it in power. Why? Look at verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God. The grace, the favor, that replaces our fear, that is fact, not fiction, is this. His grace can claim anyone. He will save. He himself will save. He himself will save in power, and you can take it to the bank because he's trustworthy. Oh, brothers and sisters, if the angel Gabriel showed up in your life, would you feel safe? Would you feel secure? Or would you be like Mary and feel fear? Wouldn't you need favor? Wouldn't you want a favor like that rather than a fear 
like Mary's. How do you get it? Let's look at our third and final point. The advent of Jesus requires real faith. It requires real faith. Here's the thing. I have to emphasize real faith. I have to emphasize true faith. There is a lot of confusion about what faith is and what faith is not, right? Like, in the church, there's confusion about faith, right? Like, even Christians get confused about faith. There's some things we got to cover and we got to talk about and we got to make sure we're clear on. But outside of the church, if you're not a Christian, like, if you're here and you think I belong in a straitjacket because I believe in miracles, right, and virgins running around pumping out babies, here's the thing. There are some misunderstandings that non-Christians have about faith. What are the misunderstandings that we have in the church? What are some misunderstandings of faith that Christians can have? How many of you are like me where you said a sinner's prayer? Anybody? Yeah, I'm from that tradition originally. I was not raised in what's called the Reformed faith, right? Do I become a Christian because I said a sinner's prayer? How many of you are from a tradition where you have a profession of faith? Anybody? See a few hands. Are you a Christian because of your profession of faith? Right? Like we get this confused. Please profess faith. Please say a sinner's prayer. Not dogging them, but does that make you a Christian? Does that mean you have faith? What about this? I know a lot of Bible. Right? That makes me a Christian. I know a lot of catechism questions. If you're not here, you don't know what the catechism is. We take the Bible, we summarize it in these truths. We write questions and answers we can teach our kids with. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing, right? But is knowing that what makes you a Christian? Is my church attendance, please come to church, by the way. Is my tithe record, please tithe, by the way. Please learn the catechism. Please learn the Bible, right? Please profess faith in Jesus publicly. But is that what makes us a Christian, a lot of people, if you ask them, or if they're really honest, like they don't even realize, they would say, well, yeah, I did that, so I'm a Christian, right? What's the answer? Not necessarily, right? That's a misconception about faith we have in the church. We're going to clarify that. What's another misconception we have about faith, right? Like we want our fears to be gone. We want favor. Let's get rid of another misconception about faith. What's the misconception that non-Christians have about faith? It's this, it's this. And talking with a lot of non-Christians, West Coast, Florida, Texas, uh, here in Indiana, the Ileana uh, region, it's this. It's faith is uninformed. It's faith is blind faith. We even try to get a verse behind it about receiving faith like a little child, right? Like that's important, we gotta break that down, but we're gonna see in the text that faith is not a blind, uninformed faith, Right? We got to see that. We got to get at that. Because here's the thing the fact that a lot of people think it requires a blind faith that you just swallow, you don't investigate, it doesn't have to be rational or reasonable, actually holds some people back from becoming a Christian. Let's, 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 I mean, it's really the Holy Spirit. I get that. But that becomes an objection. So let's remove that objection, right? Let's look and let's ask what is faith? What is real faith, right? Like, I had to wrestle with this this week, right? Like, we all kind of have to go, wait a minute, hold on. Pastor John, get out of my sock drawer, right? <laughs> Here's the thing. What is real faith? There's two things we need to know about real faith. The first is this. First is this. Real faith is not just, I have faith. That's actually kind of a nonsensical statement. Everybody has faith. It's, what do you have faith in? Can we have faith in science? 
Yes. Can we have faith in science to save us? No. Right? You need faith in someone. You need faith in something. Think of it this way. Here's what saves us. Here's you and me. We need to be connected, right? Faith is the pipeline that connects us. Like if Jesus Christ, who he is, the grace, the favor that he offers is a reservoir of water, here is your soul. Faith is the instrument that connects you to the object of your faith that the waters travel down and give you those streams of living water. It's faith in something. It is faith in someone. Are we clear on this? By the way, if you were here last week, you should be asking a question. What happened with Zechariah last week? Remember him getting the mute button from the angel? Wives everywhere rejoice when a husband is quiet for nine months and can't talk, right? What happened? Zechariah said, how shall I know this to be true? And then what did he say next? For I am an old man. And then he went politically correct and he said, and my wife is advanced in years. Is he looking in faith to what God has said through the angel, or is he looking in faith to his biology? You see it? See how that's not faith? Got it? Number one, it's faith in something. Number two, you need to know this. Faith has three components. Faith has three components, and this is so helpful, especially when you teach, you train, and you raise kids. This is so helpful. Three components of faith, what are they? Number one, I'm going to throw some Latin words at you, okay? We're getting nerdy today. I get to geek out, right? The first is notitia. What's notitia? Think of taking notes. It's when I'm going to have faith in something or someone, I need to have knowledge of that thing or that person. There's data. There's information, right? Think of it this way. I inherited, I didn't really, hypothetical, I inherit a million dollars, right? People looked up, <laughs> I'm going to go to a financial planner, a financial advisor, and I'm actually going to go to a few and I'm going to interview them. They're going to lay out their plan for how to make my $1 million, two, three, five million million by the time I die so I have an inheritance to leave my kids, right? We all kind of do this. You might have a pension. Your pension goes to financial planners, right? That's what you pay into. I'm going to listen to them. I have knowledge of their plan. I also have knowledge of that person, right? Like, I need to know that person because I've asked the question, do I trust them? Do I trust their plan? I interview five of them, right? That's the first part of faith. I have knowledge of the thing. I have knowledge of the person. Is this too academic or are we good? Okay. The second thing is do I hold that knowledge to be true? Do I hold that knowledge to be true? I can conceive the financial plan. I can intellectually grasp the financial plan, but do I agree with it? Do I hold it to be true? Do I hold it to be a fact? That's going to play a role in which financial planner you select, right? Got this? Okay. It's called a census. Do I assent? Do I agree? Here's the third component of faith, is have I committed myself wholly to it? W-H-O-L-L-Y. Have I wholly committed and entrusted my life to this thing or to this person that I have faith in? Let's go back to our financial planner, right? I have five. I've interviewed them. Some of them, I agree with the plan. I don't agree with the plan. I understand all their plans. Maybe I don't understand their plans. It's time to make a decision, right? There's only going to be one, more than likely, that you pick 
you trust that person. You're going to rest on that person and their plan. You choose that one and you commit your million dollars to them for safekeeping. It's called fiducia. How many of you have heard of the phrase, I have a fiduciary responsibility? It's where the phrase comes from. Yeah, fiducia, faith. Notitia, a census, fiducia. You can go crush it at Scrabble now, right? Here you go. All three have to be kicking, right? Do our kids understand the facts about Jesus? Do they agree with the facts about Jesus? Do I have evidence that they're committing themselves wholly and building their life around Jesus? That's what it means to have faith in Christ and to have that pipeline connected to him to receive favor and not faith. What does this have to do with Mary? Does Mary show us and teach us about real faith? She absolutely does. Look at verse 34. Look at verse 34. What does she say? Does, does Mary have notitia faith? Does she grasp what she needs to grasp? Does she have knowledge? She does, and she has it so clearly, she says, wait a minute. I'm going to have a baby. I'm a virgin. Hey, I need some help here. How is this possible? Does Mary get chided? Does Mary get rebuked? Does Mary get punished the way Zachariah did last week? No, no. Mary's not called, and you are not called to blind faith. You are called to informed faith. Mary investigates the claims. She asks for more information, and part of God's favor is that the angel gives her more information. Do you see that? Do you see that? Mary has the knowledge. Does Mary assent and agree to the knowledge? Does she hold it as true, and does she commit her life to it? Is she going to lean on, rest her life on these angels' words? Oh, yeah, look at verse 38. Some of those beautiful words in the Bible. Let me read them. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Do you hear trust and assent? Do you hear a census and fiducia, those fancy words? And look at what she says next. Let it be to me according to your word. Wow. Amen, hallelujah. Is this real faith? Yeah, this is not arbitrary. Mary gets that people aren't gonna believe that she's still a virgin and has a baby in the womb. Mary's gonna face a life knowing what the ladies are saying about her when she's not around. People are gonna think that she's crazy and she's gonna know that. If you read Matthew's gospel, right? Like you learn that her, her betrothed, like fiance, Joseph, what does he almost do? Come on, we don't like the word. He almost divorces her, right? There are repercussions in her life of building her life and committing it wholly to this little boy. Is this real faith? Oh, you bet this is real faith. What do you have faith in? What do you look to to be right with God? What is it? Is it Jesus? Like, right, like, like as we look to your schedule, as we look to your calendar, like if I could see your bank statements and how you spent your money, if I had access to your heart of hearts, your mind of minds, what would you say and what would God say you have faith in? Would it be Jesus? If it's not, if it's not, 
could you stand before God without fear? Could you stand before him without fear? Here's the thing. Do you want to have faith in Jesus? Well, let's look at the knowledge of Jesus. Let's put up that last slide. How do I have faith in Jesus? First, I need to have faith in him and look to him. I don't look to my works, right? Like I don't look to my profession of faith, my sinner's prayer. I look to him. And how do I know I'm looking to him? Well, do I have the knowledge of the person of Jesus? If not, here it is. He came as the baby to live a sinless, perfect, pure life that you need to enjoy a pure and perfect God forever. He also died to pay the penalty for our impurity. He rose again on the third day. He ascended to heaven 40 days later and reigns now as king over the earth. There's the knowledge you need. Do you agree to it? Do you hold it as true? Do you receive it as fact and not fiction? We need to. And finally, have you committed yourself wholly to him? Have you entrusted yourself to him? If not, what are you building your life on? What are you building it around? Will it hold? If you have entrusted and built your life and committed yourself wholly to Jesus Christ, well, good news. Your fear before God is gone and you enjoy all the blessings and favor found in verses 30 through 36. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. Turn and go to him today. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we come before you grateful for Jesus. We thank you for what he has done. We thank you that he has come. However, the infinite, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-present, almighty, God the Son fit into a baby, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. Father, we just ask, we cry out and we call that this would be true in our lives not just because we conceptualize it, not just because we grasp it intellectually, not just because we agree with it, but help us to build our lives on it, to be wholly committed to him and to nothing else. We ask this in your son's great name. We ask it for our good. We ask it for your glory. And all God's people say, amen. And now let's...